as you grow, they continue to feel informed and cherished and valued, directed, supported, resourced. Um, and all of this is like a playbook for that. So oh, thank I, you, Jennifer. I love it. Yeah, I really do. Um, yeah, I'm a, I specialize in diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and I have my own books on inclusive leadership. And as I read this, it felt like inclusion was sort of showing up on every page because I could imagine how valued people would feel with processes like this because of your transparency. Yeah, yeah I, well, I don't know if you want to start yes. there, but yeah. the, the book does not talk a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, because I worry that all three of those words have lost a lot of meaning uh, mm. and sort of signal things to people that frankly cause them to actually shut off and not listen. When actually, if you go to first principles, diversity I talk about in the book, which is if you're building a team and they are not complementary to you and to one another, then you're going to have a problem with results of your team, in my opinion. And then equity is really about creating a team environment where people feel equally valued. Uh, and that, in very subtle ways, can be undermined. Like if you have an exciting project and you just turn and say, hey, Jennifer, are you interested? Instead of telling the whole team, hey, there's this opportunity, right? Very simple, but very rarely done. And then inclusion to me is just basically good management, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is everybody engaged? Are you all participating in the meeting? If you're not, did I screw up? Should I have sent a better pre-read? Was the agenda wrong? Should you not be here? How do I invite you into the conversation? So that, the book is much more, it's very tactical, as Jennifer said. It is not meant to be uh, read cover to cover. It does look textbooky for a reason. Uh, it's really just meant to be, like, if you're building a company or building a new part of a company or you're a, a manager or leader and you're like, I have this thing going on with my team or this challenge or this thing I need to do, just go in the table of contents and yeah. find the section of the chapter and hopefully reading that is somewhat useful. Yeah. Uh, Based on many years of experience that I had, you know, I was a pretty early employee at Google. I was there for 10 years from before the IPO till about 60,000 employees, which was pretty crazy to watch. And then uh, I joined Stripe as COO when it was about 160 people, uh, and now Stripe is over 7,000. So that was also <laughs> quite a journey, but a different journey for me because, you know, being uh, in the leadership team uh, versus at Google, my career sort of went from manager to VP. At Stripe, I came in, and, and all the problems that I have to own, <laughs> uh, which is a good experience to have, but very humbling. I heard in an interview you were giving that um, when you first engaged, I think you were on board, but newly on board, and you looked at the size of the org, and then you looked at the size of the, the people, the stuff, and also the role, your role, too, like the question of when, do you, when are you ready for a COO? Um, and you looked and you said, actually, this company should be X size. And at the time, Stripe was tiny. And you were really, like, alarmed because you thought, and you're such a builder. You thought, how, how can we resource the true opportunity here? How big yeah. do we really need to be? And I think you had a conversation with the co-founders to say, hey. Yeah, no, I did. I mean, I came in, and, and Stripe, actually, which I admired, was early on actually quite conservative, uh, really watching the P&L, really careful about investment, uh, hiring very slowly because also very picky about talent, which is the right move. But um, I came in and I just did an analysis, bottoms up, tops down, of just like inbound sales leads, support demand, uh, our risk team and, and the needs for compliance. I mean, it's a payments business. You have a lot of pieces you need to put in quite early. Um, and uh, we were around 180 people by that point. 
and my numbers kept both bottoms up and tops down, meaning I went to managers and I said, show me your workload, let's talk about your team, what do we, uh, we should have been around 500. So we were really underbuilt uh, and for the business that was underneath us. And then it's actually, we're very user focused as a company. That's, we have operating principles and users first is the number one always. And it really does, Stripe really lives that value. Um, and our users were suffering, which helped with my conversation with the founders, uh, because for them, it, it was a big leap to think this is it. We actually have product market fit. This thing is real. And, um, and I think, I hope I gave them some confidence, like, yeah, this is the time to start growing. Uh, but the, the real story is that we had an all hands, a sort of end of year wrap up, and I had just joined. And I said to them, I said, I don't think I should be the one who gets up at the all hands and shows this analysis <laughs> with the 500 people number. And so I made John Collison do it. He's, he's very wonderful and warm presenter, but there were definitely some jaws dropping in the room and some fear, like, what are we gonna be like? What's gonna happen to the company if we have to go from 160 or 180 you know, to 500? And we, by the way, didn't end the next year at 500. We ended at 353, not that I was counting. Um, mm, pretty good. But we, we added a lot of people. <laughs> uh, so, so, so backing up, um, I, I'm curious how you, how you embrace the COO role, how you define it in a, in a high growth environment. Um, when, is, when are organizations ready for it? And then did you always see yourself as a COO? And I guess I want to know if you feel like you're a typical COO, because I read this and I feel there's such sort of pe discipline in people, um, people building, et cetera. So like, is that, are you typical COO? Oh, so many questions that you just asked yeah. me. Okay, let's see. So first of all, on the COO role, if you actually look at Fortune 500, 1,000 companies, it's not a particularly popular role. You won't see that many. I think it's fewer than 30%, uh, and it's been declining over the last five, six decade, decades. So. That's something to keep in mind, um, and I do think it's appropriate for some companies. I actually like to hold out Apple as an example. If you think about Tim Cook and what he represented to Apple, that is an extremely operationally complex business, right? When you're marrying software and hardware and you are hitting uh, deadlines with partners, production deadlines, like that operational have, like having someone who is exclusively pretty fo much focused on that delivery partnering with an extremely product-minded, creative person like Steve Jobs. Amazing to see Tim Cook then take on the mantle of CEO, but I think it can be appropriate for a larger company, but it's not that common. For a high-growth, earlier-stage company where you're seeing more of it as a role, um, here's why I think it's intriguing to founders, because look, you're facing this situation, and the book is about people and management, but the first few chapters are actually about company structures and company building. And what's happening to you is you've been obsessing about this product, this problem you're trying to solve in the world. You start to get traction, and you've gotta keep obsessing about it. You've gotta keep building it and iterating it. And then all of a sudden, at the same time, you have to build a company. Uh, and building a company at the same time as building a product is a lot. And so I think the COO role is essentially giving you leverage. And you're saying, I need, and it adds a layer, and I'm not usually a fan actually of extra layers, but it adds a layer in of someone who can partner with you on, but by the way, I think depending on their skill set, which goes to your final question, but aspects of what you need to do to build that company, um, and hopefully create stability, but also accelerate that company building while you're also focused on the product building. And for me, I'd say I am fairly typical 
if you look at profiles of COOs, you tend to see in that environment, which is I have a lot of go-to-market experience, both operational and like, in meaning like customer support and service and customer success, but also sales. I've built sales teams. I've done a lot of internationalization. Um, but I think what was unusual in me maybe is that I, uh, I'm more geared and obsessive about company building and the healthy fabric of a good company and what does that look like. It's just something I sort of study and think about. And in the, in the interviews I had with the Collisons and the, and the board, which by the way, the board was one person, Mike Moritz at Sequoia, but we taught, they sort of had something that I talk about in the book, which is a realization that they'd mostly been meeting go-to-market salesy candidates. And they were like, oh my gosh, there was a blind spot we had, which is we haven't been doing company building org stuff, and this woman seems to like do that also. And so I think that combination maybe is sometimes a little more unusual, but um, credit to them for recognizing that and asking me to take that on as a part of, of my remit. And they left you alone to, to, to do your thing, and you had a ton of freedom and runway. Yes? <laughs> they left me alone. We actually ran the company very collaboratively. This is part of what attracted me, by the way. The things that attracted me to Stripe, obviously the business had a huge opportunity, in my opinion. It was very early then. But uh, the founders, they're tremendous. Uh, high IQ, high EQ, a lot of multidimensional skills in many ways. Uh, the people that I met in the company, what they'd already been building, actually, in the culture. But also my opportunity. You know, I saw a role for my skills. What happened to me when I was getting recruited by a lot of companies is they, they would sort of come to me and say, I need a COO, and then I would ask some follow-up questions, and it seemed to me their main hypothesis was, I just want to hire someone so I can give them everything I don't like. <laughs> Uh, and, and unfortunately, that doesn't work. Uh, and, uh, I, and, and sometimes they would want to offer me a function like, will you run finance and legal, for example? Mm -hmm. And I would say, that's really not appropriate for my background. I mean, I am a general leader, but I, those are both, both functions that require some deep expertise, right? Let's not kid ourselves. And so, um, and, and so I was very suspicious immediately. I was like, do you really understand those functions or me? And do you know what you really are looking for? Whereas Patrick and John were very collaborative about what do, you, what do we have at the table? What could you bring? How do we do this together? In fact, we still portfolio shift amongst the Stripe executive team in a very healthy way, I think, depending on what stage you're at and what people sort of have in their, in their toolkit. Um, but no, it was very collaborative. I think that some companies, there's a little bit of you take this, I take that, I'll see you next week. Uh, but Stripe, um, for better or worse, we were constantly making decisions, all of us together, uh, and convening multiple times a week to make sure we were on the same page about what was critical. Mm. And then who was doing what, yes. And who's doing what, yes. What a blessing. Um, so self-awareness and mutual awareness. It's really striking in the book. It comes up over and over again. And um, at one point, you were doing 40 interviews a week, like in one of your roles or something. And literally, you look for self-awareness. And I was like, I was reading so closely. I was like, more, how does More than she... 40. Yeah. More than 40. Yeah. So you have a system for interviewing that's in this book, by the way one of the many sections that is super valuable with worksheets and talk tracks and scripts yeah, and yeah. things to ask and what to look for. Looking for self-awareness, which is so important to you in the talent, um, it's such an intangible. Can you describe, like, what does it look like? What does it sound like? And then how, how do we know we have it? How do we know when it's, when it's a developmental area for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that so I, I talk about some of my core operating principles, and the number one, and the one I mention the most in the book, you're right, Jennifer, is uh, 
build self-awareness to build mutual awareness. Um, and I can talk about that. But I think self-awareness is, frankly, it's just an attitude of learning. It's saying, I, so just if you think about a new piece of information, how do you feel when you're confronted with a new piece of information? Are you excited to dive into it? Are you curious? Do you ask questions? Or are you threatened by the fact that you don't know that thing? And I think the same thing is true about ourselves, which is there, there's an assumption sometimes that, well, I'm me, and so I know me. But actually, um, no, you don't know how you are experienced by others and how that might show up. And I think if you, I, I like to say to Stripes, like, I want us to be a learning organism. Like, what I'm really diving for when I'm asking certain interview questions is, are you someone who can step back and reflect and say, you know what, this thing happened. Here's the role I played. Here's what I could have done differently. Here's what I need to learn. Uh, and that ability, that learning orientation, um, including about yourself, is really what I'm looking for. Um, and, and one of the great easy questions is, you know, how would the people you work the most closely with describe you? And some people really struggle to answer that, and that is a sign that they have not asked for feedback, or that they have not really thought about what is it like to work with me. Uh, and that, that's probably the, I mean, if we're going to shortcut the answer. The other thing that I offer in the book is a, just a little bit of a framework. Um, and I'm sure many of you have taken various work style assessments. I'm sure in your practice you administer these with clients. So I'm talking about MBTI, the Myers-Briggs assessment. There's DISC. There's this insights discovery assessment I really like. Uh, Enneagram is one I'm seeing more people use, which is a little more to me personal versus work style. But um, those are all available tools. And so I, what, I, what I did is I built a just sort of simplified framework that I think captures a lot of what those tools are trying to help you see in yourself. And so it's essentially a four-quadrant matrix with, you know, uh, the, the axis is task versus people orientation, and then um, introversion versus extroversion, right? And if you're more task and extroverted oriented, I name that quadrant director, and then I talk about what does that quadrant tend to show up like. The danger with this, and I want to really own this, is that you can cause people to generalize, to stereotype. Of course, every single human being is extremely nuanced. And you might be particularly oriented in one direction. Actually, a lot of people show up differently at work than they do at home. And so I just want to caveat all of this. But I think it's a good little trick to say, yeah, when I have, like, someone comes to me, someone in the hallway comes to you with a situation, what's your first instinct? You know, is your first instinct to go and think about it and consider what's going to happen to the people involved in that situation? That's more of an introverted uh, a people-oriented response versus the director who's going to be like, I am going to analyze that problem and tackle the crap out of it and people be damned, <laughs> which, you know, sometimes happens. By the way, you need all four of, I've got the collaborator, the director, the analyzer, the, but you need all four of them around you to actually function well and you need to be able to access them in yourself. But recognize, I mean, the number one tool is recognize which quadrant you're sitting in and then what that might be creating in terms of blind spots. Mm. That, that's really what the conversation, yeah. I think, is and, about. And hire accordingly. So I think the goal also yeah. is we tend to probably want and feel drawn to people that share our our Absolutely. quadrant, right? So hiring for diversity of style, of thinking style, of processing, yes. analytical people, drivers that are task-oriented, relationship yeah. people that are going to be like, mm, how's it going to impact the team? 
you know, I've always thought about like, and we've got to locate ourselves in that. Yes. And then we have to be really strategic about who we surround ourselves with. And figure out how to recognize the type that is not you, which yeah. often you're not attract, like you're gonna have an interview with someone and be like, oh, they yeah. kind of drove yeah. me a little crazy. They might actually be somebody you need to hire. So right, and so that that is a tricky thing to learn. Yeah, I, I work with a task driver um, <laughs> and I, I'm the context person. I'm the slow down. I'm the one that needs to reflect. I'm the one that thinks about the impact right. and the details also actually, yep. because the devil's in the details. But when you work with a driver, you're grateful that somebody can come in, make decisions quickly without a lot of information, yep. but mitigating the risk of being that driver type is really the, the, tri the trick. It's too. the trick, but they probably drive you crazy sometimes <laughs> and do. you drive them crazy and that's great. That's and how that's you great. get good work product. Creative abrasion, absolutely. The other, the other framework that you're bringing up is, that I have in the book that's in a totally different chapter about uh, people management and one-to-one -one and performance management is that I, I talk about two types of high, very high performers that I've seen, and I call them pushers and pullers. And uh, I was interviewed actually by a, a gentleman named Jubin for a podcast for Kleiner Perkins. It's, his podcast is called Grit, if you want to. But we go into some detail because Jubin was like, oh my gosh, I'm a pusher. Like he really saw himself. These are people who are just like, everyone should be better. I want more, give me more responsibility, drive faster, like, right? And they often are on you about their role, their comp, they're like, they're really demanding. But they're really demanding of everyone around them, they really raise the standards, but they can alienate people, right? And he was, and he kind of said, you know what, I think I look down on other types of talent. Like, I think when I built my early teams, I screwed this up because I just wanted everyone to be a pusher. And you, you just, like, it's not gonna go very well in the end. And, and it was actually, it ended up being a deep part of our conversation because I hope that happens for the book. People sort of recognize themselves and think, hmm, how do I, how do I mitigate that? How do I augment that in how I build my team and how I lead? Yeah, um, I wanna share that um, I'm gonna ask you about the work with Claire Document. So yeah. I, was, I understand it, you got the idea from someone that you work with who had created yeah. a guide, Google. a yeah. guide to themselves. Like here's what you can expect in working with me. And you need great self-awareness and have, having had to take in feedback over many years, I think, to yeah. say, okay, I've heard this and this is true about myself and I'm gonna be vulnerable also to say, here's, what, here's how I process, here's how I need to be given information, here's what, you'll, what you can expect in terms of like frequency and intensity or the need to review or the need for collaboration. And I loved it and Claire included her work with Claire in the book in, in all the questions, right? And so this is like a prep doc. And as a leader myself with the team, I'm thinking, I wish- Are you gonna write one? I really wish, I need to, I we, need, we need to. Like, it's really wonderful to be prompted Every member to of think the team about this. writes one. Yep. Absolutely, and then sharing it. You said only 50% of people chose to share theirs mm -hmm. on your team, which, was, which you allowed and said- Well, it's, I think actually what I said was that when I, so I wrote this working with Claire Doc when I was at Google, and it was inspired by an engineering leader who's still at Google, who I respect very much, who wrote a user reference manual, which is the engineer version of the working with document. Um, and then I hadn't actually read his when I wrote mine, which I'm kind of glad, and so I'm a little nervous putting mine out. It's just an example that's very me, and anyone else might have a very different looking guide. But I wrote it at Google, and it was, and I shopped it around to my team. I said, does this seem real? Like, this is the self-awareness exercise. Is this how I actually act? Give me feedback. Make this better. I actually call it an unauthorized guide, because I don't know what it's like to work with Claire, because I am Claire. But, but anyway, it, it, it's out uh, on the web, but obviously in the book and in Elad Gale's High Growth Handbook, uh, which is where a lot of people first saw it. Um, but when I joined Stripe, is what I think you're referring to, 
uh, I shared it with my early, my first set of direct reports. And they really took to it. And, and, and management as a concept was fairly early then at Stripe. And I think they were hungry because it really accelerates the sort of team self-awareness. That Remember that self-awareness to build mutual awareness is about how do we all work better and know each other faster because we need to get results. We need to get work done. So they grabbed onto it. And many of them, my immediate team, all did it. They all wrote a working with me guide. And we ended up having a very interesting team conversation. And everybody shared theirs. But at Stripe, I've had the question, did you make everyone write one? And as I talk about in the company structures section of the book, I think you have to be very judicious about making things mandatory in companies. You can only have a few things that everybody does. Uh, and they have to be really intentional and thoughtful. And some of them are just kind of required to run things well. And so I, I would be loath to say people have to do this. It would be uncomfortable for some people to, to, to write it or put it out there. So what we did is shared it broadly within Stripe at my team's encouragement. And yeah, I'd say at the time, and Stripe was much smaller, Maybe, probably not even 50% of Stripes wrote theirs. Um, and that's okay. Like, and maybe someday they will. But I don't think, um, I've had some people on Twitter be like, this is managers being like egocentric. And uh, maybe, but I, I don't think you just have to be a manager to write such a thing. I think any, anyone you work with closely would benefit. I love that. I love that. Um, Yes. So, all right. So the book, tell me about the structure of the book and, and yeah. the table of contents. It's not meant to be a through read. It is go to the table of contents, find what yeah. you're struggling with, go read the chapter. Also, tremendous transparency. The reason it's so long is I think, There's honestly, a lot I feel of like examples. I'm, I'm looking yes. at like the Google Drive internally in the company. Like there was stuff that's probably in usage. Yeah. Like, and, and really mm -hmm. are your go-to library of resources where you point people to, mm -hmm. and literally it's shared in the book, which is cool. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So um, tell us a little bit about how you, what you chose to include. And I also, I'm so curious, um, since you wrote it, because I'm sure it was finished a while ago. Yes. What feels like it was missing? What feels like it was something you'd love to have had more time and real estate to go into? So many. <laughs> I know. I'm the queen of compound so questions. I, yeah, the, 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 the challenge, uh, I recorded the audiobook, which I How many hours? took on not knowing what I was getting into. <laughs> I think it was 30-some hours. Um, anyway, I spent the month of January doing that in my attic in this little room with a very nice microphone that someone sent me. Anyway. Uh, it was, it was a, as my son would say, it was, it was cringe to read my book to myself. Um, and I found myself wishing I could rewrite a few things. I actually, here's the good news. I'd say 90-some percent. I was like, I stand by, this is good. And mostly I found some stuff where I was like, oh, I wish I'd added some dimension to that point. Or the real thing to me is, you know, any company, I don't care which company you're talking about, you know, is very different from like zero to 50 than it is to say 50 to 250, certainly starts to really change after about 500, 1,000. But Stripe at, you know, 5,000, this book was written more in my context, in my experience of Stripe, sort of sub 2,000, sub 3,000 people. And by the way, I'm using people, also revenue, but we don't talk about these numbers publicly. So, But I, I want to be clear. I don't think adding people is the victory. I think it's just a signal of some form of traction and success. But the point is how you run and operate something without like thousands of people uh, is different. And I think if I went back on the, some of the company structures content, I would have talked more about how to adapt those as you go through different phases, because uh, it is critical. You, you just can't quite do them the same way. 
uh, with the right engagement. I mean, today at Stripe, it's just more important than ever to be um, more simplified and crystal clear about like strategic priorities. And you are like communicating that message over and over again to hit 7,000 people. And we at the company tends to be extremely intentional, rigorous, thoughtful. Like our internal documents are long and nuanced and detailed. And our business is complex. Our products are very complex. Payments and the regulated, regulatory environment is complex. And so it's like how do you, it's, what's interesting is if you think about Stripe's product, which is this abstraction of that complexity through APIs to you know, millions of, of businesses around the world that are using us as their commerce and payments infrastructure, um, we simplify so beautifully for a lot of them, though less now that we have so many products and that they're doing very interesting, complicated things. But, um, but internally, we weren't simplifying, right? And I think I wish I had emphasized more of how to start doing that when you're getting to pretty massive scale. Um, so to, to answer that, but, but I think that, um, I feel like there's one other part of your question that I missed, but. Well, it's, you say you have a writing culture also, like writing yes, everything well, down. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm referring to. So that's to. what you're so, referring to. So many. So, yeah, oh, and you said, like, uh, yes, there are actual things that we have used at Stripe that are sort of anonymized that we share examples in the book. Uh, but I, I think some of them we don't anymore. And that's important to know. Uh, there's no... <laughs> This is the danger. Like, there is no manual, right? You have to know the context of your business and your culture, your organization. I don't care if you're, you know, a for-profit or a non-profit. Uh, but what I'm trying to provide are structures. And the structure of the book, yeah, it starts with my operating principles and then, well, an introduction, which is a little bit of my story, and then operating principles that I hold, the self-awareness one, but also say the thing you think you cannot say, which I can talk about, um, understand the difference between leadership and management, and then come back to your operating system, which then leads into the operating system chapter, which has a ton of examples. Metrics that matter, how do you do goals, how do you think about planning, all the details of all of that. Uh, and it's, you know, nitty gritty. And then hiring, um, at, which is, I think, the longest chapter. You alluded to this. There's just a lot. It turns out I have a lot to say about hiring. I've done a lot of hiring. I have a lot to say about it. And then sort of uh, in what I call like intentional team development and how you really take a group of individuals and make them a team. And how do you do that when your team is constantly changing, which is a really different uh, challenge in, in a growth environment. And then um, people management, performance feedback, what does that look like? And then I have a chapter about you and your career and how you sort of manage yourself and your own energy. Uh, because it turns out, right, I mean, if you go back to self-awareness, if you can't if you can't be stable and strong, it will be very hard to lead a team that is stable and strong. And so how do you do that? And some of it is, is psychological strength, <laughs> frankly, yeah. and perspective. Resilience. <laughs> Resilience. Also knowing, like, I got to go extra. extra. I, I finally realized that getting a decent amount of exercise every week was just part of my job. <laughs> no, I said, if I'm going to be an effective leader, right. that is actually something I must do or else I will not be effective. And and everyone around me, including myself, will suffer. And it totally unlocked a thing that I had, I'd been overworking and under working out. <laughs> and, and, I, and once I flipped that bit, it, it actually, I feel very, I, I have no guilt about uh, leaving sometimes early to go running. <laughs> and so I would just invite everyone in this room. Some of you are nodding, like unlock that, yeah. flip that bit, and it will change your life. Uh, yeah. It certainly helped me uh, very much. Put your oxygen mask on first. Yes, yes, that is in there too. It's a good one. It is a good one. It is a, um, 
virtual hybrid working, virtual working, oh. how does that... Um, I'm sure there's whole panels at this conference there are many, about that. There are many. I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm ready to be one. But. Okay, okay. Well, I, I'm curious if, uh, what do we need to bear in mind in applying a lot of these best practices in the hybrid environment? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where are there nuances or things to watch out for that are additional? Um, I just am curious. Sure. No, I mean, I actually do talk about it. Uh, I do for two reasons. Well, one, I started the book right before the pandemic, and then I'm writing it in the pandemic, so of course it's in there. But I actually, Stripe has, from the beginning, had a distributed, I mean, we have offices, but we also have uh, what we call remote employees, right? And so they're uh, all over the world working from home, and that has been built into the culture from day pre-pandemic. And then, of course, we all became that employee, uh, and now we're in more of a hybrid setup. And I, there's probably less in the book about persistent hybrid world because it was finished kind of before that. But really all the same rules apply. I mean, here's my opinion, which is I do think, I mean, I'm now, I work remotely. Uh, I, I moved, I left California and moved back with my family to the East Coast. Um, but I would say that nothing replaces, in my opinion, in-person time. However, I have been running global teams since I was 32, let's say. So I have had people around the world reporting to me and organizations of multiple thousands of people in countries around the world. And so they, are, they were never together. Like, and so what I would do is gather in different places in the world with my immediate direct team and sometimes the extended management team, like once a year, in person. And if you use that time, like just really make it count, could be a day, two days, you can then run separately at speed for three to six months, in my opinion. But I think everyone has to figure out what's our equivalent of how we do that. And then also, if you're doing sort of a team kickoff, it's a new team, you gotta get together in person and make some of these connections, because over a video conference or a phone call, you just don't quite get, I mean, we're all like pack animals, humans are, right? We have a certain connectivity that occurs in person that is actually more uh, less in our brains and more in our bodies. And I think if you don't have that interaction time, uh, it will be hard on Zoom then to be an inclusive leader and read the person, right? You're trying to read someone <laughs> through a video screen and, and the signals they're sending you are often just not verbal. Uh, so how do you figure that out in person and also make some plans these are the priorities. And then on Zoom, you can say, hey, John, I noticed you're, you know, not, you don't look at, like you agree with the discussion, you know, can you share more? Or, and hopefully you know John well enough that being called out that way will not uh, be negative for him, but you get the idea. So my, my opinion is dedicated in-person time at the right rate right. equals successful hybrid work. And you have a description of offsite design in yes, here, I think, a too, lot right? about offsites. Literally, she goes into oh, like, I'm obsessed well, what, with them. What's so, in the offsite? Yes. Right. Oh, so many things, Jennifer. <laughs> I was like, do, do you have to? agenda. You have to read it. No, um, <laughs> no. There's a lot. There's a lot, and it, and I really specify because I think this is important. Whatever stage your team is at, the offsite content will be quite different. It'll be more team formation content early on, obviously, and then you need less of that once you've got your plan, and then you're doing strategy. Then you're doing the fun stuff. You're doing the big idea work. Uh, but if you don't have the foundations, it's hard to do that work and, and hard to get everyone on the same page. So let's turn to legacy, and then I want everyone to be thinking of your questions yeah, for Claire. There's please, a microphone. Please, we'd love them. Um, legacy, like what do you hope shifts as a result of this? Who, who really, really needs this book? 
Um, I won't. I'll, st I'll stop. I'll have ten more questions. What, what, but what do just I hope like, for the book? what do you hope happens? What do you hope mm -hmm. shifts? And I know now you're you're on boards. I mean, your your lens is shifting mm -hmm. in the world, mm -hmm. right? And so, what are you feeling drawn to at this point in your career? Yeah, I think fundamentally what the book is about is, um, and I say this feeling not particularly humble, but access to my experience uh, and not having to know me <laughs> and not having to get an introduction to me. Uh, and it is unusual to be in a, in a pretty front row seat to two pretty interesting companies over the last 20 years. Um, and so Stripe is really fundamentally actually about access. It's about infrastructure that I don't care where you are in the world. You want to build a company and take payments and move money. We're trying to enable that, which is actually was not so possible before Stripe. I think people forgot that time. But, but, and so Patrick and John really encouraged me to write the book. This was not my idea because they felt like the company building and the tactical work that I mostly led in the company was as critical as a lot of the product work and business work we did. Um, and so my goal is that it is useful. I mean, I've, I say, I think in the afterward, if there are one to three things that you take away, then it's worth it. I mean, for whatever, 20 to 30 bucks. Like, I mean, I, I hope that's worth it, that, that my particular very detailed description of how I would do the thing uh, resonates. And I think, you know, who, who will it most benefit? I think people who uh, care a lot about the environment they work in, which is a lot of people, but, you know, company builders, certainly people who are newer to management or leadership. And then uh, I had an interesting, I got interviewed um, for a McKinsey author kind of talk by a, a, you know, a McKinsey associate, a woman who it turned out had really recently graduated from college. And she held up the galley, and she had annotated, because she was a good college student, I think, annotated the hell out of the book. And I, I said to her, I said, I'm shocked that you had so many notes or that it was so, because it just like wasn't yet her world experience. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is demystified. So many things that I have heard about. <laughs> and so maybe there's also a secret audience of people who are maybe new in companies and wondering, what is this? what the hell is all this stuff? So who knows? But I, I do hope that what it really is is a chance to have a conversation conversation with me without me there uh, before the AI Claire shows up, which I've had wow, a few people oh ask goodness. me about and I'm not ready AI for that. Claire. I'm sure that's another panel uh, that's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, but yes, question, if there's anyone who has yes, questions, please step please up to come the mic. on to please. the mic. Okay, thank you. This, there we go. Thank you for coming to Texas and um, <laughs> thank you for High Growth Handbook and for this book, which oh. I'm going to read for sure. Thank you. I'm kind of curious on what compels people to join companies before others do that. Hmm. And so what was your criteria yeah. from going from Google to Stripe? Uh, I, I did have, I finally figured out my criteria. So thank you for asking me. I, I, what was happening toward the end of my time at Google, which remember was like 10 years, right? And so I was part of a lot of building of a lot of parts of Google just because I moved around a lot. Toward the end, I started to really have opinions about what I thought we could do differently. And also I missed the earlier stage building. I think I am a more, um, I'm, I'm comfortable with beta. I mean, and, and if you look at my career, I, when I talk to people about fairly like successful early hires we had at Stripe, I actually kind of fit the profile in a way, which is I had done fairly entrepreneurial things. In my case, it was political campaigns, but they're a lot like startups. And I had never worked in a particular, I was also part of a startup consulting company. Um, and then I had gotten some classical training and done some more standard professional stuff. But that combination of entrepreneurial risk taking with some good training, 
um, I think is very powerful, but I, I think um, a lot of people I worked with at Google who were in senior positions at the time, because remember Google had gotten to a maturity, would not have left for a 160 person startup. Like no, 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 no. That would not have happened. So what was my criteria? It was that I, um, I kind of listed it. I think that the vision and the mission mattered to me. I was done working on advertising as an engine of growth, uh, and that's a whole other panel. Um, but this felt infrastructural, it felt important. It felt, I, I think economic development is, is probably, I hope, one of the most important things in the world for people and, and for me, and so I wanted to, to do something related to that. The founders, just stellar. I mean, if you look at my choices in Google and Stripe, I think I'm a good judge of talent and business model. Um, the business model, <laughs> which people are like, payments, it's so low margin. You had to have vision for what it could be and also understand what technology could bring to the table. Um, so, and then finally, the people that I met in the process, like I thought I could see myself being there, but, and, and the position, the chance to be at the head table and also to own some functions that I hadn't driven. Again, going back to, I want to do some things I'd never done before. So if you can get that combination for someone of, their risk appetite, and they really get what you're building and your business, and then how do you give them a place where they're gonna add value immediately and then a place where they're gonna grow? Like that, I think, is the abstracted answer. Sorry, it took me a while to talk that out to you. Uh, that's great, thank you so much. Sure. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Awesome, hi Claire. Hi. Um, I had a question. You talked about hiring slowly and the importance of it, you talked yeah. about hiring people who have different strengths yes. and focusing on building the company. I'm curious to see when, while you were talking about a quote from uh, Peter Drucker came to my mind about uh, culture eats strategy, strategy for, for, for breakfast. breakfast. One of my favorites. Uh, so I want to ask you, you, you didn't talk a lot about culture, so how important is culture in your company and how important should we think about culture? Yeah. Yeah, so I am a believer that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and the book talks about it without talking about it. Uh, but a lot of my emphasis in the book is, uh, I appreciated Jennifer's focus on people, and it's called Scaling People, but is everything that I'm recommending is in the interest of results. And in my opinion, if you do not make the investments I'm talking about in your team, in your company, like eventually it all suffers. Uh, there's a book uh, from Bill Walsh called The Score Takes Care of Itself, that's one of my philosophies is like, yes, I set goals and metrics, but how do I get them achieved? It's because I'm doing these fundamental things and how I run uh, my environment. So, um, and part of that is culture building, yes. I, I think the challenge with culture is when you start to describe and talk about it, you kind of kill it. Uh, and in the book I talk about this professor actually who just recently passed away, which is, he was a preeminent thinker on culture named Edgar Schein, and he's well known for an iceberg image or a lily pad image, which is culture is only very partially what you can see. Like if you think about Google, a lot of you think like primary colors and the big bouncing balls and you know like that, whatever, but like, and then a little bit under the surface. So Stripe, for example, we, I publish in the book um, a guide that we share on the, on the Stripe site, the job site, for candidates, like, here's how to think about whether you would be a good fit at Stripe, and we expose some of our operating principles and what they look like in practice. Like, what is it like to experience these in action? And that's the under the surface. But the really deep, you all know, icebergs are mostly, the ones that aren't melting, are mostly under the surface, and that is this unconscious beliefs and values system that you almost can't articulate, and when you try to, you're probably, so that's why it's hard. I don't talk about um, as much of that 
But I think what happens is it becomes, in the same way that inclusion is reflected through the work, culture is reflected through the work. Um, and so mostly though, if you look at the, some of the early stuff in the book on operating structures and hiring, that's where you're seeing, I talk about onboarding, and what are you onboarding people to? The culture, right? Both the product, the company, the people, but the culture. Um, but you have to do so, it's about what you do, not what you say. Uh, and, so, and so it's hard for me to give you all the nuances of what we do all day at Stripe, but um, I think uh, I would recommend, as you're thinking about building culture, think about your actions, who you recognize, where you spend your time, uh, what, you, what you sort of celebrate in the product or in the business, and that is your culture. Um, and it's built on your unconscious beliefs and values, so you'll become more self-aware once you do that analysis. Thank you. While we're bringing up the next question, or, um, the culture, I would add that, um, investigating belonging in an environment, you know, what does that mean to people? How do they define it? Um, who feels historically not as someone who belongs in a certain culture? That's also super important to get your hands around because I think if we, whether whatever's getting in the way of belonging, for example, identity that's underrepresented or something where there's carried sort of stigma or feelings of loneliness or isolation based on who we are in a culture as it changes, you know, bringing that up to the surface of the iceberg and beginning to celebrate it, talk about it, it's sort of weird. It's like there's culture today, but there's also the culture we're all creating at, at the same time through using our voice, bringing our all of who we are to bear, you know, we're creating it in real time. So there's like a DNA, and then it's like shifting also, I would imagine, with the growth, with the addition of lots of different kinds of people. And um, the question to me is how do, you, how do you capture the core, the essence, and yet be hold it loosely and let it also develop mm -hmm. and be shaped by the new workforce, yep. which actually looks very different and more diverse in every way, both visible and invisible as companies grow, and, um, and, and enabling people to shape that culture and be heard and seen and respected in that culture is, is sort of this really interesting challenge, I think. I wondered what you thought about all that. I agree, my short response is, I think again, if you lead well, you're creating belonging. Yeah. But I worry that an overt focus on belonging um, creates division. Mm. Uh, and creates people to feel difference and not similarity. And that, in fact, like at, at Stripe, you would hear many, many Stripes say, we really react um, when there is a mistake, when there's, when there's a quality issue in the company. And remember, we're dealing with people's money. Uh, and everybody in that company, from whatever background they have, is held to a very high standard. Uh, and that is a way to create a, a unity behind, wow, we are, un by the way, it's not an easy place to work. We are under pressure. We have people's money. <laughs> we, we um, and I think that, that that's the balance, which is how do I welcome everyone, in, like their engagement, their ideas, them feeling comfortable sharing those things, but also in service of all of the same priorities that we all share, we are one. And so how, and that balance to me, and I worry some companies have gotten out of whack. They're spending too much time on celebrating difference and not a, on why we're here. Interesting. Uh, and so that, that would be my caution uh, on that topic. But why don't we, yeah, yeah go thank to. You. Thank you. Um, hello. Hi. Uh, first, I'd like to say that uh, I came to the conference uh, looking for inspiration and 
Thank you. This was so inspirational. Oh, thank you so um, much. My question, I think part of it uh, already was answered uh, with what you were saying, but um, I work in a company that uh, in the same market of uh, Stripe, and it's a company that in the last six years we grew from 500 to uh, 14,000 people. So hello, very fast. yeah. And um, with that comes losing good people. Mm -hmm. And how do you you said something about uh, teams that change a lot? Yes. Uh, what do you recommend? Uh, to avoid losing good people, good professionals, because when you lose someone that is good for the team and for the, yeah. the company, you, you don't lose just a, a person. You lose um, knowledge, sure. um, uh, experience a lot. So what do yeah. you both recommend? Yeah, there is the uh, sort of, uh, you'll talk to a lot of founders and they'll talk about how their initial set of employees are the most critical hires, and I think that is true because those are the people who are creating a lot of this culture, to your point, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, absolutely, it organically evolves as you add. But, but what I don't hear enough conversation about is long-tenured employees of a young company because those folks are gold. And I think you're describing that, which is you see these folks who have so much institutional knowledge. And by the way, you know, the operator in me would say to you, I worry about companies that aren't documenting that and building it into how they run things as opposed to just re relying on an, a person's knowledge or heroics by a team. But um, what I talk, one tactic I'll offer you is in the book I talk about pre-exit interviews. And so if you really identified critical talent, uh, doing a, a really quite structured conversation with them about if you were going to leave, why? Why would you leave? Because the problem is once they're leaving and you do the exit interview, you learn a lot and you can course correct for the next 10 people, but you, you and, and so I really, I, it's a practice I kind of just use sometimes with my top talent. I just sort of start asking them some questions. They're like, why are you asking me about this? But, uh, and I say, I say in the book, like there was a point in my career at Google where if you had asked me that question, I would have revealed a particular issue in the division I was in that I'd never shared with anyone, and I just moved. I left the division, which is why I ended up staying at Google. But if I hadn't moved myself out, I would have left because a particular issue was happening. So it can be very revelatory to try to, to prevent. But, I, but there is also a quote in the book from a very experienced recruiting leader who said to me over lunch in my early time at Stripe, you know, the ones who got you here don't always get you there. There will be people who leave, and that will actually be good and okay for them and for the company. The other thing I would say is know the difference. And let. And also, life is so long. Mm -hmm. So many people that I've worked with in my life have come back to me, either back to the same company or in other ways. And so my hope is, yes, you lose people, but you don't lose them. <laughs> that's the other, that's the optimistic note to end on. But thank you for the question, and good luck. That's a lot yeah, of growth. That's a lot of growth. <laughs> I would only add um, something like a skip level strategy too. Yeah. I think managers, people leave managers before they leave jobs and companies. This yeah. is the truth we know. Um, and there's just such a lack of, I think, transparency and fear when you're in a situation and it's just not possible to, you have, your to choice is just to leave. Exactly, yeah. like you just said. So I think that structuring a learning environment and an environment with enough psychological safety, to, and this is not easy, but to give people many avenues in which to explore where they might fit and what may not be going well or where they may not be feeling challenged and, and supporting that individual with as much other relationships besides the yeah. manager and kind of keeping track institutionally of your hypos 
so that you're yeah. you're making sure they're always feeling challenged. But I just I always think that there, there's just not a lot of transparency there for good reason. Mm -hmm. Really tough to have your manager also be your mentor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a very rare person yeah. that can really have that like longer term. Right. And I also think managers are gonna cling on to people. Like you're gonna you're gonna hold your person when really you should That's let not, them fly. Yeah, we t I talk a lot about yeah. that. And I talk about studying patterns of uh, mobility in your company because sometimes people yeah. moving out of an area is a sign of a, oh, a challenge. Good thing to look at. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Good Thank ads. You. Good very, question. Very curious about the book. Oh, it's a good oh, one. Oh, well, sure. well <laughs> book signing uh, after we're, we're, se we're signing and selling some, apparently, right after oh, this. That's, so. that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yes, you. Hi. Uh, so my question is in this topic of finding people. Because until you have brand recognition, yes. you're competing with uh, every other company there. Uh. So if I need to select the right people for my company, how do I get them to apply yeah. and find me, and how do I find them? Yeah, um, I talk about that. That's why the hiring chapter is so long, because it starts with that, which is before you're even in a hiring process, how do you find them? And um, the, the answer is a combination of one, those early, so the first people that you find, you know somehow, or you know people who know them. You are working your network, which is good to a point. It can create a diversity issue, which I talk about in the book, but it's good to a point. And you are, you're gonna use referrals. If you hire well, those initial people have good networks. If you don't hire well, they don't, by the way. So I talk about some data that supports that. Um, really mining those networks, building seriously it's one-to-one, man-to-man -man defense, blocking and tackling, like, have coffee with me, have, like, this is what you do, right? Then the next stage is how did you develop some form of recognition in communities that have the kind of talent you're looking for? And in Stripe's case, which I can speak to more easily, really this is a developer. It's a developer-to-developer -developer distribution play. It's a developer product, especially early Stripe. And so where are developers talking? Hacker News, IRC, Reddit, Quora, like you would see Stripe's founders participating in external public forums with developers and engineers on topics that felt interesting about engineering, about what Stripe was building. And, and then um, we actually, I describe in here, we ran some early engineers at Stripe built a contest mm -hmm. that was super engaging for developers called Capture the Flag. And of course the people who won were really interesting candidates. It's just one idea, but I think in today's world, it's like about where are those people? How do you talk to them uh, about you and the company and be an interesting person they want to know? Uh, or maybe your head of engineering or whatever it is, but that's, that is the work. And it's sort of the world is more fragmented today and some people view that as a challenge. I think it's an opportunity uh, for talent identification. If you're in a services business, um, like I am in the DEI world, um, I'm a big believer in, in giving and being very generous with thought leadership, like contributing yeah. to the field. And I think this is what you're that's, saying. That's also, it's Sort yes. of being in the mix in the field, bettering the field, thinking about like what are, what is this field struggling with and what might I, what might we right. write about, um, Sharing podcast your knowledge. about. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and then I think you that become known. draws people in, in a much Agreed. more natural way Agreed. than I think pushing sales, which is a yes. harder way. So I think services businesses, um, especially like founder, where the founder is very visible. Yes. Um, I've written a lot. I'm in conference. I'm swimming with the fish that I want to know, who want to know me, who want to know what our point of, have a strong point of view as well. Like I think that unique 
point of view you can become known for. So, you know, going through that sort of, I say thought leadership, I don't think those are bad words. I think that honestly all of us should be bettering our fields and really contributing to those and being very public about it and, and looking for the gaps and what are we not talking about? What have we not figured out? Where can I make a contribution? Um, and then maybe that turns into a book and maybe some of you will write books someday which codifies that, you know, when people end up really Or wanting. never write one again. I know, right? <laughs> so if Poor Claire. She's not in the honeymoon phase. Well, you are in the honeymoon phase. <laughs> I know. I, this no. is a, I don't Were know what kind of honeymoon this is. I'm still tired. But I, I totally agree. I think publish an essay on something interesting. Yes, totally. Related to your company. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Um, I was wondering, what is something that you often see in organizations that are just growing like zero to 50 or 50 mm. to 250 that hinders them from growing like organizationally well I mean I think the sort of first principles answer is that a small organization can be in a virtual or actual physical room together and know everything that's happening and make decisions almost together which was by the way the way Stripe was very much um, and that's great, but it's actually not great <laughs> because you're not building any muscle on sort of aligning on what's important and then dividing and on specializing on like we need, this group needs to do this and then we need to trust them. And you're not building practices where you have visibility on each other's work. When I got to Stripe, there was like a lot of feedback. I went and met with almost every single person in one-on-one -on -one and there was so much anxiety because we were crossing Dunbar's number, like 150, where it's hard to know even everyone's name. And people were like, I don't know what that team is working on. <laughs> like, and, and it wasn't like that there was like paranoia, or but it was the beginning of distrust or anxiety about are we all on the same page? Like, what's going on? And like, really, some of the reasons you have goals is to meet goals. Some of the reasons you share team goals is so people can see what teams are doing. But you know, building the practices of visibility, communication, uh, delegation, dividing, and how do we come together and then separate as opposed to being kind of a scrum uh, and, and too organic. It's just too organic after about 50 for a lot of the things you need to do to scale. Uh, and, the, and, and by the way, Operating Structures chapter is for you. <laughs> so I talk a lot about that. But thank you for the question. I love that you just brought up Dunbar's number. Does everybody know what Dunbar's number is? Yeah. So I just love that concept. There's something, there's a flip there. Yeah. That happens. It's real. It's real. Yep. Thank uh, you. And research supports thank it. Thank you both. That's why. <laughs> uh, Jennifer and Claire, thank you for the talk. Um, I have a kind of a career development question. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you have a very successful career. You know, you're on a few boards. So I wonder if you can share a little bit on how you get on the board and if for someone, um, if you have any advice for someone maybe younger, earlier in their career, yeah. that want to eventually have that vision to you know, eventually get on the boards. Okay, yeah. Board member. So the question is about getting on boards, which I do. Thank you for asking because a lot of people do ask me that. And um, it is this sort of talk about mystifying behind closed doors kind of processes. It is sort of a black box. Uh, I would say that um, the, well, first of all, you, you do need to distinguish yourself in your career. Uh, and a lot of boards of a certain larger size of public companies are really looking for people who are sort of a C-level 
or have, or say at Google, where I, I, my first board I joined when I was a VP at Google, but I had a significant responsibility and scope, and so that was like significant enough that they felt, okay, you're not the CMO or the COO, but you have an interesting. Um, so one is your career <laughs> and what you've done with your, with your career. I think, though I will say, boards are starting to take more risks, I think, on people who are earlier stage. I'm on a board where we're looking at a slate of candidates, which is really exciting, which has a couple of uh, founders of, of companies in the space, which is, happens to be the energy space, who maybe um, are early in building what they're building, but they're clearly like, and I'm thrilled to see that, because I think that kind of risk is, is needed in boards. But one, your career. Two, um, your first board is the hardest. Because once you've shown you can do it, they all want you. Like, it's kind of ridiculous and dumb. It's like kids playing soccer. Like, oh, that, the ball went that way. Let's chase it. Um, and so being really thoughtful about where you might be a good candidate for a board and networking in making it known that you could be interested. And that is the thing where this is going to be a custom conversation, right? Like, what stage company are you interested in? And what space is it? And then who are they using big firms like Spencer Stewart, Russell Reynolds, Egon? There's these search firms that all they do, they have a whole practice for boards. And you need to be known by the person who leads that practice. Uh, and they need to have a reason to meet with you. And you want an intro to them. And then when you meet them, they start looking for you for a board. Seriously, like that is the note for, for a certain type of board. For an earlier pre-public company, it's going to be more about their investors, uh, maybe even some of their early employees. Like I'm on a couple of boards where s engineers that I worked with in my past are in the leadership teams of the company who said, this woman is great, you should meet her. So, so I think, um, but it is a lot about network identification, getting the introduction, distinguishing yourself. Um, but it's not... Once you crack it, you get it. So I, I wish you, I, you can do it. That yeah, was. Quick follow-up question. In your case, were you being intentional about it? Like maybe you didn't tell everybody, but you were kind of intentional about it or it just came, came along with Here, your success? Yeah. I was not that intentional about my first board. I was quite early, and I joined the board of a large established, Hallmark, a large established, pu not public company, but run like a public company. I met the CEO at a conference I was at for Google, and he and I had a lovely conversation that he asked his search consultant to reach out to me, which was great, because then I built a relationship with the guy who ran the board search practice for Spencer Stewart at the time. Um, but that was sort of just a... I was at a conference, I met someone, so, sort of a thing. Um, but what I was intentional about after that is I realized it was worth it to take the meetings with some of those search practice people. Um, because, head, well, forgive me if any of you are headhunters, but they can be super annoying and it's like not a good use of your time. It turns out some of them are <laughs> and figure out who they are and have coffee with them, <laughs> I guess, is what I would say. So in the end, I, I did, in the, I, and some of them I have a relationship, I know them well, I've never joined one of the boards they've sent me, but they send them to me, and, and I appreciate the deal flow. And so I think that's what you're kind of looking for. It's like being an investor, right? Um, but, but yes, I, I, and I see we're actually at time. We, yeah, we are at time. Thank you for your question. Yes. Everybody, we're both doing book signings um, uh, down the hall. Yeah. Right this right way? Right this way. So we'd love to take yes. more of your questions, but thanks so much for joining us. We yes, really appreciate it. And come see appreciate us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.